Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs and to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Want regular updates on moves your competitors are making? You can learn more at startupcompetitors.com. Hey there. Today, we're chatting with Jonathan Huang, who's the managing partner of Unicorn Venture Partners. We talk a lot about the Unicorn Venture Partners process and how they evaluate deals, specifically pre-seed to Series A. We talk a little bit about Jonathan's background and many of the other things that he's engaged in. Uh, We talk about a new company that he's co-founded that he's taking to market right now, and he's getting ready to do a fundraise there. So we talk a little bit about the difference between being on the investment side of a pitch versus being the founder who's doing the pitching. Super fun conversation. I believe you will enjoy this if you are a founder or an investor. Go find Jonathan on LinkedIn and connect with him and thank him for being on the podcast. And thank you so much for listening. With that, I also want to do a quick shout out to Fuel Merchandise Group. Fuel is uh, one of our newer sponsors here to the podcast. You can find them at fuelmerchandise.com. If you need any brand marketing or products for your company, you can get 10% off your first order. Just mention startup competitors at fuelmerchandise.com. And with that, we'll just get right on to the show. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're chatting with Jonathan Hung, who's the managing partner of Unicorn Venture Partners. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here. Why don't we start with a quick overview of Unicorn Venture Partners? Great. So Unicorn Venture Partners was started in 2018 with really three general partners. Uh, The funny thing is we actually don't have LPs. Uh, What it is, is that it's three family offices coming together. Uh, One's a close friend of mine that I met at business school um, at Wharton, Dave Lin. And the other GP is a close friend of mine that I've known since I was 24 and he was 21, uh, Philip Serafin. And we decided, you know, we were making investments separately. And we said to ourselves, hey, let's maybe, maybe you want to start a fund down the road. But, you know, it's hard because we all have different track records, different investment stories. We said, let's start, create a vehicle and an entity and start investing and see how we do and see if we want to keep going and working together and and see if it makes sense for us to partner up. So we started Unicorn in 2018, uh, August. Our philosophy was, you know, doing pre-seed, seed, and Series A investments. Our two verticals are basically the technology space and also the consumer space. So really, you know, we, we our check sizes are anywhere from 50000 to 250000 initially, and we make follow-ons uh, of two fifty or greater for the Series A. So I'm curious, since there's no LPs, do you guys actually structure it as a fund, or is it more like it's an angel group with the three partners and you guys just decide kind of deal by deal what what you want to invest and how much? From our perspective, we try to treat it as a fund. We write investment memos, which is funny, right? Because only three of us are reading it. But it's good <laughs> down the road for data rooms, right? I remember because we did try to go like raise back then. I was in Singapore, South Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Shanghai. You know, we were going everywhere. We were looking in Europe as well to find LPs. And really, like, you know, it was good experience to learn what we needed to provide and show. So, you know, we do it as we have partners meetings every Monday. We have, we bring deals separately. We have a process, you know, we're never going to have like, uh, you know, two GPs on the call at once. You know, we all do our separate diligence and then come together. And just like any formal process at a venture firm. Uh, Why separate diligence? Why not have two GPs on the same call? Because sometimes I think like, 
it's good to have one's perspective because sometimes like, uh, you know, I have a different way of looking at things uh, versus Dave, for example, you know, I'm definitely more like art and Dave's more science and he, but like, there's nothing wrong with that. Dave looks at the numbers. We have just different trainings, right? Different experiences. I've been more of an angel investor in my career and an operator running my family's business. Dave's background is investment banking and he was at Upfront um, back in the day as well. And he looks things uh, at a totally different way, you know, and, and that's great because you don't want to have like, the thing is like, I didn't want to partner up anybody with anybody who was just exactly like me because then like, you're not going to have that like natural dialogue or discussion. Interesting. I, you're now making me second, like, so we do uh, some angel investing on our side as well. And I've been trying to get my partner and I on the same calls and you're making me second guess that entire philosophy. <laughs> No, it's totally fine because sometimes you have to think of it. It's, it's rounds, right? It's just like getting interviewed at like, you know, whether you're at a Fortune 500 or Goldman or Google, whatever field, right? You never just like in one meeting with all these people at the same time. You got to just, it's a step-by-step process. Interesting. And then what, uh, so you mentioned the investment memo earlier. What goes into the investment memo? Is it, are you all three trying to hit the same things? Or are you each focused on your superpower? So like, you know, d- is it Dave? Am I getting that right? Right. So for us, it's what we're writing is just why? Why do we like this investment? Right. Why? Why at this moment, at this time, it made sense for us to put in money? I mean, I could give an example. You know, one of our investments that we made uh, back in 2018 was Coinbase. And right now, even though, the you know, the stock is a little down right now, it's still great from where we invested. We got in at around $32 a share. Right now, right now it's trading above. So you're, like, you're doing good. <laughs> we're doing okay. We're doing okay, right, for that investment, right? But but you have to think, like, at that time, in 2018, right, 2017 was the boom. Now it's even a greater boom for Bitcoin, right, and Coinbase. But at that time, Coinbase, you know, the value of Bitcoin went down from, like, you know, 17000 all the way down to, like, four, three, 4000 right? And people are wondering, well, is this it? Is Bitcoin even real anymore? Is, it, is the party over? And the valuation was $8 billion. So you had to justify and say, like, why it made sense. Like, looking back, like, yeah, we look like heroes now. But, like, you know, there was a little debate. Like, is it is it over? <laughs> right. And so then from a from a process perspective, walk, walk through from a company reaching out to you to say, you know, Jonathan, we'd love for you to take a look at, at what we're doing and see if we're a good fit to you guys as a team deciding that we want to make this investment. What's that overall process and timeline look like? I would say, you know, I, I just had a call right before this, you know, for a, a consumer beverage company. And really, it's just initial, initial, like, let's see what's going on. You know, when I when I look at a, a company, it's like, I look at four things. Um, I look at like, number one, when it's this early seed stage investing, I look at the team. Who is that individual? Who do they have right now? How are they growing? You know, is this the right team? Because I've made mistakes in the past. No, we all have. And like, if you do this long enough, you're going to have your anti-portfolio is going to be even more impressive than your actual portfolio at times, right? Because you look at it, it's just like, oh, I made mistakes where I invested on the idea and concept. And really when it's this early, it's it's the grit and relentlessness of the team that's going to really get them through to get to their series A and beyond. Perfect example. I hate bringing this up, but you know, I can still bring it up now. Just, you know, in 2012, as an angel investor, I looked at this deal and I thought it was a weird deal. I thought like it was a company where you pretend to buy and sell stock every week. And it was like a daily, almost like a daily fantasy trading game. And I thought, who wants to play this game? There's no angry birds, you know, 
There's no like, you know, Zynga or Fruit Ninja or whatever. And right. I thought the value was high, you know, and I thought the idea was weird. I just didn't think it was good enough, the idea. And you know what? I should have focused on the team because the, the guys who are leading the team are still there today. And the name of the company is called Robinhood. Robinhood started as a fantasy trading app. Are you kidding me? No, that's what it was. It was a gaming platform because that's how they got users onto the platform, right? Because when you're a $20 million company valuation, you don't have enough money to trade. You can't like, you know, buy actual stock, right? <laughs> For your oh, users. Interesting. So, right. It was just a gaming platform. And look at it now. It's gamification, right? It's like, you right. know, Warren came out and say, oh, they're gambling. Like, yeah, that's kind of how they started out, right? It's like when you buy a stock, like, hey, confetti goes off. <laughs> right. You don't know, get that on Charles Schwab. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe you should. I like the confetti in Robin Hood. Right, yeah, but that's, that's the way. And so, you know, when I look at that, like the team is so important. That's why I like to do initial, you know, now it's Zoom calls, right? But I, obviously before it was in-person meetings. And then look, you look at the IP, you look at the intellectual property, what are they doing differently? And then I look at revenue growth and, and customer growth and see like, okay, how can this company get to 100,000, you know, monthly recurring revenue? And you get through that process, you talk to them. And if I like the team enough, you know, the people who are talking to me, like we run through the numbers. Okay, I'll bring in Dave, you know, and we'll run the process. And he he goes in and he gets his uh, opinions. And then we bring it back to our committee and we make a decision, you know, from there. And what, 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 what check size we're comfortable with? Is this something in our investment thesis and portfolio that makes sense? How long does that process typically take and i and i'm sure it you know there's all sorts of answers in that bell curve but ideally how long would the two of you like it to take honestly if it's like a deal that's like exciting and quick like it might take like literally uh a week really fast or sometimes it might take a month right depending where we are because it's super early like come sometimes like hey deals we have to win right if if we're in a, a great company hey we're not the only ones looking at it so sometimes we have to make decisions fast so it does help that you know it's just the three of us and you know we don't have lp sometimes <laughs> because we can make a decision really quick that i mean that's a better being an angel slash family office right how often are you leading around i'm i'm imagining the the 50k is more the pre-seed seed and the 250 is more for a series a so you're probably not leading all that often is that not true that's very true. But at the same time, it just depends where we are, right? Um, you know, because we don't have a target ownership, you know, and, and also it looks like how much the f- company is raising. The good part of it is that, like, we also have another strategy in place because Unicorn Venture Partners, it's a great pre-seed seed strategy. That's what we're doing. That's our entity. But we also have something called Truesdale Ventures that we sit under the umbrella of. Truesdale is Philip's uh, family office, you know, and in that family office, we're looking at pre-seed checks all the way to pre-IPO companies. Uh, we look at all the alternative investments because and that, that check size can anywhere be from like 50000 to up to $70 million that, that that family office has made into a company. So strategically, we might put a smaller check through Unicorn, but then later on, we'll add more through Truesdale because we were testing it out. We were trying to see if it made sense you know, at that stage. All right. So Unicorn, Truesdale, before we clicked record, you were also mentioning that you're getting your hands dirty again and and co-founding another company. Just really quick, zoom out. What are all the things you're involved in right now today? 
you know, I just like to keep busy, you know, during COVID. I, I don't know what to say. Um, you know, my most of my career now, the longest job I've had is running my family office and my family business uh, called uh, Barrage. So I got, you know, my entrepreneur and management through running a contract manufacturing business that my father started in the mid 90s. You have to think of us as basically Foxconn for clothing, right? Because, you know, Polo, Nike, they don't own factories. They always like use third party. And that's what I did from mostly men's clothing, suits, suit separates, pants, woven shirts, knit shirts, you know, selling to Costco, Amazon, Berlin Co-Factory, mail order, uh, catalog companies. So you know, it was a great experience doing business in China. You know, I, uh, right now you can't go to China, but I was there, you know, at least three to four times a year going to factories, uh, having a team there. Uh, from now, I, that's transitioning more into my family office because, you know, it's a totally different world now. China is not, it's still a manufacturing state, but it's more of a consumer state than anything. And so uh, that is something I'm still working with. Um, obviously, I have Unicorn and Truesdale. I also help with due diligence at an accelerator called Expert Dojo in Santa Monica. Um, I love doing that because that's like in the root of what I love doing is angel investing. It's, it's somewhere where it's like you're so super early and you're really betting on the team. And yeah, it could be a crazy multiple, but it's just like helping a company and their founders start and fit, helping with the vision, like really early. And lastly, I'm starting a new company or I'm a co-founder of a company called Team Kitchens. Uh, it's here based in Los Angeles. It's a ghost kitchen concept. Uh, we've partnered up with Nathan's Hot Dogs. We partnered up with uh, the Dodgers and selling Dodger dogs throughout Los Angeles in about eight locations soon enough. I love it. So... There's a couple of things I want to unpack from there. One, do you find it a struggle to your balance to 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 kind of find the time and and balance across all those different ventures? Like, are are they all making demands for your time, or are they all pretty hands off and you get to kind of choose and pick where you want to spend your time? How does that work? You know, like after you know, I've worked at corporate jobs, right? Working at Morgan Stanley or UBS or Cummins, and you know, sometimes those jobs, you know, it's nine to five and you're done right? You don't have to worry. You're not 24 hours. But, you know, since running my family's business, being an entrepreneur and an operator, you're 24-7. You know, just because you have to go to bed at night doesn't mean like, hey, it's not morning in China, you know, and something happened on the factory line. So I'm used to just like, now I don't want to say put out fires, but there's always something coming up. My father taught me something always. He was like, careful about the blind side, you know, because like you could always prepare for everything, but then like you're going to just get hit all of a sudden. It's something that you, you never thought about or think about happening to you. And so you have to figure, you have to be someone who's always ready for the challenge. Like, well, hey, I mean, being being a president or CEO, it's not that you're only good at finance, you're only good at supply chain. Like every day is something different. You have, a, you know, an, an import or a, a, a container that gets lost or getting held up. Or you have to deal with, you know, a finance or accounting issue or you're dealing with like, you know, I have, I have companies go bankrupt on me, you know, and they took clothing within 20 days. Like, OK, now you got to talk to the legal team <laughs> and get ready to file. And get your money back. Right. So I see that with everything else I do, you know, it's my time. And I have certain time during the day and these where I focus on sometimes. And the number one thing is you have a great team and great partners. I mean, I couldn't do any of this by myself. I always think it's funny when a certain entrepreneurs or CEOs get all the credit. Listen, you're only as good as your team. Yeah. Amen to that. Let, let's dive into that. So you said several times you're betting on the team particularly when you're thinking of it, when you're evaluating an angel investment, when you sit down to evaluate a team, what are you looking for? 
you know, it's, it's not just like, oh, I have to be from a certain school or I did certain things in my career. It's all just a hodgepodge of things. Cause like, I think about that now when I used to interview, like I've interviewed for probably all, maybe a lot of the fortune 500 companies, you know, in my time in my twenties. Right. And I came to this conclusion. It wasn't that I wasn't like good enough to work at those companies. It was really like fit and personality. Cause sometimes like your work family, I like to call it like you spend more time with your work family than your actual family during the work yeah. week. And so it's like, sometimes it's just like, do I want to hang out with this person? You know, do I want to see this person for eight, nine hours? You know, is it a fit? Is like, is uh, if it's somebody I'm going to be conflicting with all the time, like why, why, why do that to yourself? So for me, it's just like, is there a natural rapport? Do I like this person enough where like trust is built? Like, and, and you have the communications open. Like the thing is that I hate is sometimes like, you know, I've made investments with certain entrepreneurs where like, listen, they're doing great. You know, I invested with them in an angel round where they were three and a half million and now they're worth 90 million. It's great. But you know what? I don't hear from them anymore. All I, I, I hear from them when I hear news articles about them and I'll send a text message. Hey, congratulating them. Their series A raise and then their series B raise. Then I look back on the text message like, oh, he never responded back <laughs> from the last email or text. And I'd rather work with somebody who's like going to be, because you're going to face challenges. You're going to have to pivot. You're going to have hurdles always along the way. And when you're ready, when you're always watching about the blind side, when you have that rapport, like you're going to be ready for it. That's the key, I think, with the relationships I want when I look at who I want to give money to and invest in. How do you identify if the founder can do that themselves, right? So it, because it's not just them that you're investing in, you're investing in their ability to create the team around them. What what are you looking for to see if they've got the ability to do that? Really, sometimes it's just their experience. I mean, uh, you know, my current uh, partner at Team Kitchens, my, he's, the, he's, he's the founder and CEO, and I'm the co-founder and COO or his chief strategy officer as well. You know, he's been through it. This is his fourth company that he started. And he was one of the founders of Ordermark and Tap Into and another company that I put in money to called Grilla. Unfortunately, Grilla didn't work out. COVID bit a big snag. I mean, it was about doing like uh, videos, you know, creating videos. Cause I actually do believe videos is the future of advertising. Obviously you see that now with everything with Instagram, TikTok is doing. It's not just like print media <laughs> at all, you know, billboards or bus stop signs. And, you know, at that time, like, Hey, you know, sometimes a great idea, it's just, it was too early, you know, or it was like certain market conditions didn't allow to take it off the ground and you run into cash flow issues. But you know what? You know what Mike did? He actually helped the investors out by saying, listen, I got to stop this. I'd rather put the money into this concept because during COVID, this is a better investment, better strategy. And he, do, and he does that. And like, it's all about integrity because even in, I like to call the schmata business, right? That I've been in <laughs> the clothing business. I mean, it's a small community. And in the venture world, it's also a small community. Like you're only as good as who you are. And, and if you're just there to squeeze out a couple of pennies here and there, you're not going to have a career. You might make, you know, a, you might hit your quarterly numbers, but that's not going to be for long. I mean, most people, you're going to have to build a great network of people who you, who can trust and believe in what you're doing. And I think that's the key. If if I believe in an entrepreneur, like, listen, and I know they're doing bad, you know, I'm going to still fight, find a way to help fight for them and get them the money they need or the advice or the time and get meetings because I know that there's someone I believe in and they're going to figure out a way. And even if we don't, if we don't succeed, that's okay. 
that's okay because this is a really hard game that we're doing. But you know, if you're going to be in that foxhole, if you're if you're going to go out there and and be successful, you're. I always think you're only as good as who you're with along the way. I always tell people, I'm not trying to slice up the pie in so many ways. I'm just trying to make the pie bigger for everyone to have a piece of it. Ignoring your partners for a minute and just looking at you know your personal investment memo, right? When you're evaluating a deal and trying to decide for yourself if this is a good deal, one that you would want to invest in. At what point, and I'm, you know, I'm sure again, this is going to be a bell curve of outcomes, but you know, when, when your gut reaction, at at what point do you typically find that you've decided to make the investment? Is it early in the process? Is it, you know, you, you reserve judgment all the way up until the end and you've written the investment memo and, you know, you've, you've really given it the time. And, And partly what's driving this question is earlier, you said, you know, you're a little bit of the art and, and your partner is a little bit of the science. And so what that triggered for me is like, how much of your decisions, if it's art-based, is a little bit more intuitive versus, you know, by, by the numbers. I'd love just whatever occurs yeah. after that long-winded question. Yeah, no, no problem. I mean, listen, both, I think we both have art and science, you know, like I can't sit here and say I don't have the degrees, you know, I have four degrees, right? <laughs> and like one of them that I got was at MIT. And, you know, everyone talks about Six Sigma. And, you know, I had a great professor there, uh, Dr. Jonathan Burns. And, you know, he had this like book that he wrote about talking about 70%. You know, if you can get confidence at 70%, if you have 70% of the information, you should make a decision. And that's kind of like, not that I know it's all of your 69 or 71, right? But like to get from 70% to 80% to 90% is a lot of time, money, and effort. I mean, no one has 99.99999% confidence in making a decision. It doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States or a Fortune 500 CEO or just somebody who's like, you know, figuring out what they're going to do for their kids on a day-to-day basis, right? If you have 70% confidence in something, I would go to Vegas with those odds, right? Because more than likely, like, you're going to have a good outcome for yourself. So that's what I think about when I'm looking at a company. Like, am I there at the point where, like, I have 70% confidence and that this is a right decision to make. Because, you know, I'm not going to get to 100%. No one does. No one can be 100% certain of any investment that they make. And for me, like, it could be early on. It could be our first meeting. It could be by the second meeting, you know, where I'm getting there. And then, like, obviously, I'm going to have to figure out all the different pitfalls, risks that are involved, you know, that I can't be like, oh, this is a sure bet, because nothing's a sure bet. It all just depends. But that's where I try to figure out and go to. If I can like, have 70% confidence in something, if I think this is a great idea, great team, right time, hey, let's do it. How often do you reflect back on the portfolio and crunch the numbers to, to look at how successful the investment strategy has been over time? You know what? Not as often as I should. I think the one thing that we haven't done, um, because we're just fortunate because we don't have LPs, is that... Um, you know, I'm not getting enough quarterly updates, you know, from all my portfolio companies. Like I know where they are, where they're at, you know, but I don't like make them dig into the numbers exactly and figure out the IRR, you know, on unrealized terms. But, you know, I, I, I spot check and see where they're at, where, where, what's important is for me, the, the cash flow. Like I always think when I'm looking at investments, it's all about getting to the series A. When it's when I'm do, when I'm thinking about the strategy for unicorn, because I think of it's like, hey, the seed round is like I'm just trying to get you through high school 
And when you get your Series A, you're going to college and that's it. I'm done. I'm not sitting on the board. We're not going to have like daily or weekly calls anymore or monthly calls. You're, you're ready for a new team because right. it takes one team to go from zero to 100,000 in sales. It's a totally different team to get to 100 to a million and then a million to even greater, right? It's really rare that it's always the CEO from the start is a CEO that goes all the way to IPO. I mean, you see it all the time. You see like, you know, Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, the team at Airbnb, but it's, it's not necessarily the case because really like you have to bring in great people along the way. You have to bring in the right chief operating officer or, or the CFO or the VP of sales. And sometimes it's like, I'll step back. Like Uber wasn't the people who founded Uber wasn't Travis initially, but Travis was the right CEO to take them there. And then another CEO took them public and leading them now. So for me, it, it always, it just depends. I, so I hear you, but <laughs> the, so one of the things that's interesting about hearing you say that, so I, so I can picture me saying that to a founder because I've never, you know, I've, uh, my background is certainly not as pedigreed as yours and all I've ever done is, is run some small companies. And so I can provide when you're just getting started. I can probably provide some pretty good insight, I think. But then I reflect on your background. You've done international business. You've worked at tons of, you know, Fortune 100 companies. You've, I mean, like you could be providing meaningful insight for, you know, I'm sure it would depend on the company, but, but you could easily be providing meaningful insight, even, you know, post Series A, Series B, uh, as the company grows. So how do you, balance that? Is that more of you just stepping back and saying, I don't want to be involved at that stage. I'm more excited about these earlier stage companies. Or is that, do you look at it in a different way? It's just all about timing, right? Because like, you know, it's a lot of work to be, you know, being a board advisor or a venture partner or somebody who's there from, from, from the day to day. I mean, when I look at it, it's like, Hey, I don't want to be on every board possible, right? Because when I look at like right now, it's fun one for Unicorn. We may or may not, you know, raise fund two, but for fund one, the core of our strategy is going to be 20 to 25 key investments. And we're going to spread that out with, with the partners, right? And from my point of view, like, listen, we're going to have obviously certain like outlier investments like Coinbase or Lime that are already at a later stage, you know, evaluation and the, their team is totally in place. And we don't have, we're not even happy on the cap table big enough to have a voice. But when it's this early, you know, when you're writing your half a million dollar check, like, listen, you're, you're in the trenches and you know exactly because I've been through it. Like I said, I've worked at those companies. I've, I have my retail experience. I'm definitely more understanding of a consumer company than I am a tech company, even though I've made investments in both. And I know like, oh yeah, well, this is the person you have to reach. This is the person you have to, to talk to, to make a decision, to get your product in that store. And he, this is a marketing person or team that you should be working with. So it really depends on the type because when you look at a venture firm, each partner has different skill sets and it's not necessarily this partner is perfect for every single company. You know, it really, it's almost like, it's almost like, you know, the bachelor or something where you're, you're picking partners, right? And like, this is the person you want to work with on a day-to-day basis more because they understand your role and where you're at and what your company's doing. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need. Not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Fullstack PEO. Fullstack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services 
but advice and expertise that helps founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find more at fullstackpeo.com. If you were going to give advice to a founder who's on the other side of a transaction to to kind of, I mean, we've been talking a lot about how you evaluate founders and founding teams. What would be your advice on the other side of that is you're going out to raise money. You're going to talk to a bunch of venture firms. What should they be looking at to, to try to identify that same chemistry? Listen, I always tell people too, like, you know, another business professor, uh, Laura Huang from Wharton, you know, and she's at HBS now. And she had a great phrase like, hey, not all money is good money. And it's true. You have to be selective too. Like, it's not that I, I understand it's, hey, if you have somebody who's willing to give you a check and, and you're desperately needing it to grow, hey, listen, you've got to be make sure that it makes sense for you to take that check. Because, you know, there's certain investors who want to like call you at like, you know, 8, 8, 8 p.m. on a Sunday and talk about things. You know, do you want to deal with that? And even as LPs as well, like, I don't necessarily want an LP who wants like all my time. You know, I mean, I don't mind giving as much time as I can to help them walk through investments, but like to have a daily, <laughs> daily talk at a certain time, it's tough, right? You want to work with people who, who you have a real like general fun time with too. I mean, it, it really is. It's not just like, oh, you're hitting certain data points and it's great. Like I said, this is like your work family and you got to have fun with your work family. To me, it's really about making sure like, listen, obviously, look, they're going to check the right boxes in terms of having the right pedigree and like intellect and all that. But then it's just like, are you comfortable telling them the truth? Like, I mean, I always think it's funny. It's like, is this your person you're in case of emergency contact for, for, for venture? Like that's the person you lean on and rely on when times are tough. Christine, I, I like that little filter of in case of emergency, is this the person you'd call to bail you out of startup jail? I, I kind of like that. Right. I mean, that's what you need. I mean, we think about that. Like if you're, if you're married, you're six five other better be your in case of emergency contact, or then why are you getting married? Right. I like that a lot. All right. Talk a little bit about team kitchens. I'm super curious, even though, you know, the focus of this is unicorn ventures. I'm super curious. What's the stage of that company team product, where you guys are at and kind of, uh, what do you view as the arc of that business over the next six to 12 months? You know, we started that last year during COVID. It, it, it's, it's interesting because sometimes, you know, when you look at startup a company, you know, you don't also necessarily need venture money. There's like amazing companies out there that are just great cash cows. You know, small family businesses make up a lot of the U.S. economy. And really like, you know, you raise enough money, like you don't have to raise any more money because sometimes like I don't want to take a check from Sequoia or Andreessen because they want just growth, growth, growth. Right. And you have to support their growth. But if I all I need to raise is a million dollars sometimes, that's great. And then I can cash cow the business. So for Team Kitchens, it's like we are basically uh, the future of making, you know, restaurants 3.0. Because in a sense, like, you know, because of COVID and everything that's happened, like there's dine in is not there anymore. And people are ordering more. I mean, look at what Uber just reported on their earnings. Uber Eats is like 60% of the business right now of delivery. So it's just like, okay, well, let's make concepts for that, right? Because thinking about like, hey, I have to get a big commercial real estate place to have a cheesecake factory. I mean, that's a lot of money. 
Like, I don't need to do that. If I can go into a cloud kitchens with Travis, or we're, we're working with him as well, or going to Reef, or working at another one in Santa Monica called Colony um, Kitchen, it's great. We, we, get, we, we basically rent a space. We have a concept, you know, we're lucky enough to get partnerships with Nathan's and uh, Cosmic Wings, which is part of Applebee's brands and also uh, the Dodgers. And we're selling American comfort food, you know, and se- sending it. And we have great marketing and advertising with the Dodgers to get out there because you can't go to the game even. So let's have a Dodgers at home when you're watching the Dodgers play. It's great. And so like we're, we're scaling up right now from four to eight more loca- uh, to eight total locations and listen it's like in my sense it's almost like owning eight eight mcdonald's or eight subways right because usually it, what it is is that you don't you don't make money just by opening one mcdonald's you have like three that pay for everything and then the uh, everything after three is just hey you're just like printing money so from that concept it's been great uh we're, we're, we're doing great in sales and i think going forward like we came up with something that we saw so from Team Kitchens, we're creating something that I'm becoming a co-founder with Mike, Mike Jacobs, the, the, the CEO, called Kitchen Data Systems. So with Kitchen Data, what we're looking to do is like, listen, you're going to need all this data to help these restaurateurs out because it's not always conglomerates. You know, it's not the Applebee's or the Denny's that are, are, are part of the restaurant industry. You're looking at really mom and pop, you know, like one individual location. And right now, look, dine-in is out the door. I mean, we'll see. It might come back, but we, I don't think it's ever going to come back to pre-COVID numbers. So why not add a virtual kitchen? Why not add another brand to help you make a little additional revenue? Like you have the same, I mean, the foods you have, uh, making sure it's not, you know, you're not making Indian and Chinese food for, you know, a hot dog stand, right? It's not going to be the same. But if you can add on a, like a Nathan's or or a Cosmic Wings into your restaurant, right? Nathan's and Applebee's, they don't have to purchase the real estate, right? You're already making the food. You have the kitchen, you know, eyes and everything like you could add on, you know, and you don't, you're not selling to your current customers, but you know, the drivers from DoorDash, Uber, Postmates, they're coming in and, and giving you an additional revenue. So then why not do scale? Because you're one mom and pop store, right? You're not going to ever beat Applebee's on buying the, the supply, like the oil, for example. So we're trying to create a network of, of virtual kitchens for all these restaurants throughout the U.S. where, listen, we could take advantages of economies of scale and help you find savings. Because, listen, I don't know if DoorDash or Uber Eats, the business model is going to survive for very long. I mean, restaurant tours, they're getting killed. The fees are crazy. I mean, sometimes they're like, you know, the, they're, they're paying 40 to 50 percent to do these delivery apps. And maybe to them, it's not profitable for them to do that after labor and everything. So we're trying to help them have a system where they could buy a software as a service, to like find, you know, ways of being part of a network to save money and find other brands to bring them into their kitchen that they could cook and, and sell. Do you think you'll do a fundraising round for kitchen data systems? Uh, no, for sure. We're working on the pitch deck, you know, and I'm thinking like, gee, as an investor, what questions am I asking? And looking for, and I'm making sure we have that in our pitch deck. So we're out there right now. We're working on it. I actually have to review it later today. And yeah, we're. I think we have a good team in place. Um, we're, we're 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 scraping all the data, making sure who our customers are, and we're going to go out there to raise maybe two million dollars um, at a decent valuation. I'm not going to go crazy because <laughs> valuations are out there right now, and take a chance and see if like, listen, have we have we cracked the nut? Are we onto something great? Do we do we find a great product market fit and use the money to get to that stage? 
So is there anything different you do in your, as you think about raising funds for kitchen data systems that you think would be non-intuitive for a first-time founder who's like out there looking at, you know, Kiyosaki's standard nine-slide pitch deck, eight-slide pitch deck, right? Like when you think about what you're doing that's going to make the difference in somebody else seeing your company through the lens of, you know, that deck and that pitch, what are you doing to make sure that that's a successful fundraise? For me, it's about targeting the right people. You know, I mean, besides running all these companies and everything, like I'm, I'm an LP in 20 different funds. It's crazy to think. I don't know how it's happened, but like since 2012 to now, I've written LP checks. And I know each partner at all those different firms, I know how they look at things. I mean, we could be on the same page on one investment and be totally different on another because it's just our, our experience and viewpoints are different. So I understand like what certain venture funds are looking at certain things or certain investors. I mean, it doesn't have to be venture money. Like I said, it could be, you know, a great family office. It could be a high net worth individual that you want to go to. And that makes sense. That's the right partnership. Like we said before, like it's all about finding the right partnerships that you're in case of emergency, right? Contact. And so I want to say like, okay, they're going to get this. And listen, listen, you're going to get to 99 no's before you get to that one yes. So at least for now, I can kind of figure out like, well, I don't need to go to 100 because at least, you know, through this experience, I've almost done 10 years of venture capital. I know who make this make sense for. Certain companies don't invest in consumers. Certain companies need this MRR or this need these many customers before they even talk about you. So I'm not going to focus on those people. I'm going to focus on the people who understand, hey, this is this is a great concept. This is the right team. I'm going to, you know, get, join in on the ride. So I have that little bit of that advantage. So in... In theory, if I, I could say that another way, if you were giving me advice as a as somebody out there looking for funding, it would be, you know, make sure you're spending as much time in figuring out who you're targeting as you are on the actual message that you're delivering. Exactly. It's all about research. I mean, you know, somebody hit me up. I, and this is what I love sometimes. Like, I love LinkedIn. You know, I, I sometimes send out cold just LinkedIn messages like, hey, I'd love to learn more about your company. You know, and like, you know, it's all about your personal brand. I mean, if you if you search me or you looked at my the content I create, like you understand like who I, I am as an investor just by doing a little Google search, right? And researching the companies I've been in or the things I'm involved with. And that's so important for any, you know, startup founder to look at. I mean, don't just look at, oh, what, what portfolio companies are in or the successes, like look at their experience and background, what they think about certain views. You know, because it's all about creating your personal brand. It's not just about like, oh, I'm unicorn and this is how unicorn invests. No, it's just like, oh, each partner is different. Each partner adds a little bit something different. Like sometimes it's better to target because like when you're in a VC firm, like each partner is going to be a champion of what they believe in. And it's it's up to like, you know, I, I look at Founders Fund, for example, right? They have three main GPs. And listen, if they're writing over a $5 million check for something, all three have to agree. But if they're writing a million or less, only one has, has a green light and that's okay. It really just depends. And so you're saying like, oh, well, I need to target this person because this person knows my business better than anyone else. It's just like when you look at Shark Tank, you don't want just money from any shark. You want the one that makes sense for your company. It's great insight. All right. If I was uh, spying on you on a Saturday morning, what would I see you learning, doing like being excited about in your free time? What are like weird hobbies, interests, new things that you're learning? What, where are you spending your time? You know, Saturdays are when I just decompress. 
Because like, you know, from Monday to Friday, like I'm going from like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. at times. Like, but on, on the weekends, like I'm always like reading news articles. I love medium, you know, just thinking about like what the future holds because you, you really have to look at things from, you know, yeah, sometimes you have to be micro-focused, but you have to look at, you know, at a hundred, you know, a hundred mile radius too and see like where the future holds. Like for me, my interests are, Hey, besides just venture investing, right. Or angel investing, like, listen, I'm a great, I love sports. You know, I'm a season ticket holder of like every LA sports team, more or less. I mean, my favorite team's obviously the Lakers, you know, I grew up watching basketball and Kobe. Um, also, uh, you know, I'm somebody who loves music and concerts. And unfortunately, like all these great things I love to do because of COVID, I can't. Right. You can't do those right now. <laughs> right. But then, you know what? You know what I do? Because I'm a consumer uh, investor. I go to the stores. I go to like Irwan, for example, here in LA. And I go look at my products or look at new products. And I'm thinking like, hey, what are the trends? You know, because I've been in fashion, right? The thing about fashion, we look at it, it's like you come up with like joggers, for example. And initially, like, who's going to wear this, right? Like, we want, like, traditional slacks. But guess what? Who's wearing suits anymore? <laughs> you see, like, sometimes you have to look at the trend much earlier. And it might be two or three years too early. But that's okay. You have to start somewhere. And then you're going to see the trajectory that more and more people are going to come in. Because it takes time. It takes time to, you know, build up. I love it. All right, Jonathan, if folks want to get in touch with you or if they want to learn more about Unicorn, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I mean, send me an email. Uh, it's just John, J-O-N, at unicornvp.com. Hey, we were lucky we got the .com. <laughs> That's kind of why we named the company Unicorn Venture Partners. <laughs> got a .com. Um, also, check out my LinkedIn or go to jonathanhung.com. I have a lot of great contact. My blogging's there, and there's ways of sending me pitch decks or anything as well. Awesome. Jonathan, thank you so much. This has been a blast, man. Hey, thank you so much, Mike. Startup Competitors provides monthly handcrafted email updates on your top competitors. Keep up to date on new hires, marketing activities, events, awards, new product launches, pricing changes, funding, and a bunch more. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.